The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Hi, welcome everybody. I'd like to thank Michelle and, and Tom uh, for both uh, organizing and sponsoring uh, this lecture. It's a real pleasure. Um, so uh, it's my great pleasure uh, to introduce to you uh, the speaker today, uh, Professor Eric Fossum from Dartmouth, as you can see. Um, when I started my position up at JPL last February as chief technologist, one of the first things I got asked to do uh, by Charles Alachi was to uh, prepare a short little uh, five, ten minute presentation for uh, John Holdren's visit. Uh, of course, John, as many of you know, is uh, uh, President Obama's science advisor. He's the director of OSTP. Uh, and my job was to come up with some kind of story related to technology in JPL uh, that would catch his attention. And uh, the one thing that really came to mind was Eric's story, the story of the invention of the CMOS imager. So uh, we prepared a nice poster and uh, Holdren came and I showed him the poster and I launched into the story and you're gonna hear Eric's version of the story. Uh, but I started way back in 1969 with the invention of the CCD by Boyle and Smith at Bell Labs and how they got the Nobel Prize and how that got JPL into the CCD business in the early 70s and how that led to Hubble and how that led to Eric coming to JPL and of course uh, Eric previously had been a professor at Columbia and he, he came to JPL and, and gave us a much needed shot of expertise in uh, imaging and semiconductors and uh, it was uh, at JPL that, that Eric came up with the idea of doing uh, uh, image sensors using uh, CMOS uh, devices, which of course you all know, uh, that's how you make computer chips and being able to make an image sensor with exactly the same process technology is, uh, is, is very important. That's what led to the very low cost uh, chips that, that you have in your cell phones. So uh, Eric uh, uh, has made a huge impact uh, on the world as, you're, as you'll hear. Uh, he's been recognized uh, for his contributions. He received the 2009 uh, Andrew Gro Grove Award from the uh, IEEE. Uh, if, uh, if you look at the list of the recipients, uh, it's a who's who of uh, pioneers of, uh, in semiconductor devices and semiconductor physics. Uh, so it's really uh, quite an honor. And then uh, just last spring, uh, Eric was inducted into the National Inventors uh, Hall of Fame which is another big honor and uh, caught the attention of, of course us at JPL, but in fact uh, all of NASA. Uh, this story was on uh, NASA's web pages and uh, they were very proud of the story. So please join me in giving uh, 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 Professor Fossum a warm welcome. Eric. Well, uh, <clears throat> well, it's an honor for me to be here, and uh, thank you very much for coming on a Friday afternoon. And I have to uh, say something that uh, when I prepared this talk, um, I prepared it for a uh, general audience, and yet as I gaze out and recognize many of you in the audience, I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, this was like too easy. <clears throat> but uh, anyway, I hopefully, uh, if the science isn't, uh, or technology is not too challenging for you, at least the anecdotes may be, may be <laughs> interesting. I'll try to tell along the way. So, uh, so thank you for uh, inviting me here. And uh, uh, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, 
the science and technology of digital imaging, but I also want to touch on society issues as well. So uh, let me get started. So uh, we all like to uh, take photographs and uh, pictures, and uh, I always ask people, I've been trying to ask people, why, why do we take pictures? What is it? And, uh, and it's, uh, it's actually an interesting question. I guess we'd like to try to have some sense to uh, remember what we saw and to, to share that with other people and to get a sense of being there again or, or share that sensation with other people. And, uh, and it's, I guess, fortunate for me that uh, we'd like to do that. And uh, in some sense, it's kind of interesting that uh, even at JPL, as we send uh, these interplanetary spacecraft out, we also want to get that sensation of being there, even though we can't physically be there. <coughs> uh, so uh, people have been interested in this for uh, a long time. Uh, this is uh, people have felt compelled to capture images of uh, their world. Uh, Probably, well, here's one that we found uh, collectively from maybe 10,000 BC. Uh, this is uh, just one of my favorite uh, pictures because it uh, reminds me of how I feel from time to time, especially as we <laughs> try to move this technology from JPL uh, into your uh, cell phone. And of course, you've gotten more abstract over time. And this one uh, sort of photorealistic uh, image I put up here because I shamelessly promote my cousin, Bob Jackson, who's a, a painter. <laughs> uh, now, being uh, engineers, uh, we are, uh, I think we're characterized by being lazy. We like to find easy ways to do things, easier ways to do things. and. Uh, uh, and certainly capturing images uh, by uh, brush and uh, paint is very difficult, and people found ways to try to capture images of their world uh, kind of automatically. And uh, it's been going on for uh, quite a long time. Uh, these are examples of uh, perhaps some progression of uh, cameras. This is, uh, oops, I'm going to do this again, okay. Uh, this is a uh, daguerreotype, which is, was not the, uh, the first camera at all, but uh, probably one of the most popular for uh, many, many uh, decades, which would capture uh, images on a, uh, a copper plate, and, uh, and then uh, you would be able to uh, develop that copper plate and uh, uh, keep the image. The, uh, that was uh, kind of reign the king for quite a while, and then uh, Eastman Kodak uh, bought some uh, patents for uh, film that comes on a roll and uh, kind of came up with this uh, consumer gadget, which uh, was the uh, Brownie camera, which uh, actually, I, I gave this talk uh, just a few weeks ago at Yale, which wound up on YouTube. And uh, for some reason, that talk has received like 30,000 hits on YouTube, which is, I, I figure, 29,990 are people that looked at it for like two seconds and then went on to somewhere <laughs> else. But at least one of those people wrote me a letter to explain that uh, my original explanation of some of this history was off. And so uh, I'd like to thank that anonymous person if they, uh, or semi-anonymous person, if they watch this tape that I, I've tried to adapt and, and, and learn. But anyway, apparently uh, Eastman Kodak did not invent the uh, uh, film that comes on a roll. 
but he, uh, he bought those patents. And then his, uh, what his thing was, he says, okay, we'll uh, sell you the camera and the roll of film inside, and you can shoot maybe 100 uh, photos, and then you ship the entire camera with the film inside back to uh, my company, and I will uh, process that film and send you back the camera with a new roll as well as the prints, the pictures. It's kind of an interesting uh, business model. And that uh, actually lasted for, for quite a long time. Uh, digital SLR, I'm sorry, SLRs, film SLRs, uh, became quite popular. This is one that I owned personally, uh, so I'm sort of affectionate for this uh, K1000, um, which also used uh, roll film in a uh, uh, canister. And then uh, last but not uh, least, the beginning of the, uh, say the digital age, this is a picture of Steve Sasson and his uh, first portable digital camera that he invented at Kodak around 1975. Now, uh, especially being here at JPL, and you can check my YouTube talks, I always try to credit JPL for uh, what I consider to really be the first digital cameras. Uh, but I would say they're not portable, and uh, you would never get them to get sent back to, uh, to get the, the uh, images developed either. Another uh, interesting anecdote, by the way, I got to meet Steve uh, Sasson at the uh, National Inventors Hall of Fame induction. I'd never met him before. And uh, we got to talk afterwards. <clears throat> and we were both uh, standing with our, uh, our penguin suits on and medals and everything. My daughter, who happened to be there, came up to me and said, Dad, wow, this is a great opportunity. Let me take a picture of the two of you together. And Steve and I thought, oh, this is a great, great idea. I stood up straight, tucked it in. And my daughter came out and reached into her purse and pulled out a disposable film camera. <laughs> and uh, Steve and I are like, what, what? And, uh, uh, that was her gag gift to me for the night, was to uh, take our picture on film. I thought that was kind of clever. Anyway, uh, there are many kinds of uh, digital cameras, uh, of course, uh, uh, there's the point-and-shoot kind and web cameras. Uh, there's also uh, motion capture cameras where you capture uh, facial expressions so you can do animation. Uh, there are uh, dental x-ray cameras where you uh, shoot uh, dental x-rays directly uh, uh, into the sensor and uh, you don't have to worry about getting your uh, dental film developed while you wait in the dentist chair. Uh, camcorders, of course, backup cameras for uh, cars, security cameras. Uh, then this is, uh, this is one of the very first swallowable pill cameras uh, that we did the sensor for. This was a, uh, uh, a company in Israel that uh, came up with the idea, but they didn't know how to make a sensor that didn't require a large battery to go with it. So we applied the technology to that, and this is you, you swallow the pill and it goes through your intestines. And um, actually it's about the only way to non-invasively uh, image the small intestine. And so that's uh, become just kind of a regular thing these days for uh, GI medical work. Cell phone cameras, though, uh, by far are the largest product category of cameras these days. I will come back to that in a minute. And then there's also an uh, uh, emerging uh, technology for capturing 3D images, uh, and I'll come back to that as well. So uh, more, I think everybody knows uh, Moore's Law, and uh, we're not in the Moore building, I guess, but uh, 
Anyway, uh, Moore's Law kind of says that uh, things get uh, smaller at some uh, amazing uh, geometric rate over time, and that uh, things get, uh, as a consequence, get smaller and uh, faster. And uh, cameras have been doing the same thing with that. So uh, this is a camera made around 1993, CCD, uh, 300 uh, uh, kilopixel CCD camera. And standard TV at that time was about 300,000 pixels, 0.3 megapixels. And uh, the, the CCD chip is actually quite small and compact, but the electronics required to make that chip operate and to capture the data that it produces is quite extensive. Uh, but today, uh, we can build a endoscopy camera that's uh, very, very small. This, of course, has uh, a smaller pixel count, only uh, 60,000 uh, pixels. But still, uh, it's quite small. And if you uh, need an endoscopy camera, uh, I think that uh, most of us would agree that we're grateful that cameras are this size <laughs> rather than that size. <laughs> uh, this is a, uh, a two megapixel cell phone uh, camera module taken around uh, 2007. It's actually a, uh, well, it was a company called Simpel that's uh, here in Arcadia and uh, was actually sort of a, sort of a JPL spin-off company using a MEMS technology to uh, move a lens back and forth uh, uh, inside the camera that uh, was founded by uh, Tony Tang and Roman Gutierrez. Roman was a Caltech grad, by the way. And uh, we actually put the, uh, all that into this module, and uh, my job was just to uh, be the hired gun to run that company. Um, but uh, now, uh, just a few years later, here's a 16 megapixel cell phone camera with autofocus. And the sa this is a one centimeter size, by the way. And it's just uh, even amazing to me that uh, even between 2007 and 2011, that things could shrink that fast. So uh, I want to pause in the uh, technology part just to talk about some uh, society-related things. So uh, I think that uh, the ubiquitous nature of the mobile phone has really uh, allowed us to share that concept of being there with people very, very easily these days. And uh, so, uh, <coughs> of course, this would be my daughter and my wife up at Stanford. And uh, this is what it looks like to be in New Hampshire in the middle of winter, by the way. Uh, and then this picture I took uh, is not really a cell phone camera image. This one I took in 1999. There weren't any real cell phone cameras at that time. This was when we first started having the, uh, the miniature technology um, kind of put into a small package. And at that time, that camera, a really small camera, was tethered to a laptop. And so I took this experimental device on family vacation. And uh, so uh, basically, as we're traveling around the Southwest, I would uh, stop and see a picture I wanted to take, and I would, well, first I would have to boot up my laptop, and that would take quite a while. And then I would uh, uh, try to uh, balance the laptop on my knee, and then hold this camera that was tethered to the laptop, and then try to hit the, uh, the button on the keyboard at the right time to capture the image, and it worked most of the time. But uh, talk about the ultimate geek vacation trip. It was. Uh, it was really uh, quite some, the, the looks I got from people were pretty interesting. <clears throat> but uh, more seriously, uh, 
we can say that this uh, ubiquitous uh, camera technology has really uh, possibly led to uh, large-scale social change. And uh, part of that change is, uh, is just so rapid because, I think at least, you have this uh, feedback from nearly real-time visual images. It's just unprecedented in history that uh, you could see visually what's going on in other countries almost on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think this has really kind of changed society in terms of, uh, well, in this case, uh, revolutionary processes. Uh, and that, uh, so far, has been kind of a good thing. Uh, but, you know, maybe, maybe we have too much information. And uh, there was a, uh, a fellow, Bill Davida, who gave a talk recently at Dartmouth. And uh, he gave a talk on uh, being uh, overconnected, promise and threat of the internet. He also wrote a book of that title. And uh, he was talking mostly about the stock market and how the internet has promoted a lot of feedback, positive feedback, which is not a good thing from an engineering point of view most of the time, uh, for uh, wildly fluctuating stock market prices and, and things like that that uh, aren't too good. Uh, but for me, uh, I could really relate to that because I remember watching, for example, the images from the Japanese tsunami in 2011. And uh, just feeling like, wow, you know, we can really have this godlike vision. We can see everything that's going on around the world in great detail. And usually, unfortunately, the stuff we see is usually something that is dramatic, because we don't bother to watch things usually that aren't too dramatic. Um, and yet, I personally had this feeling of helplessness, that, wow, I can see all this stuff going on, but I can't do anything about it. And I just wonder what that means to us as a society where we can see everything but not do anything, uh, at least not at that time. So I felt that uh, not only were we overconnected, but uh, perhaps we're also uh, overloaded with, this, uh, with information these days, visual information. A, uh, a second uh, issue is uh, privacy. And, uh, you know, I, uh, when I first... Uh, when we first started getting some publicity about this uh, CMOS image sensor technology, a reporter from the BBC uh, radio came to interview me over at JPL. And one of the questions he asked me was, um, gee, are you worried about Big Brother? Now that you have this technology where cameras are going to become ubiquitous, are you worried about Big Brother being able to uh, follow you around? And I said, well, I, I'm really not worried because there aren't enough people to watch all the monitors of all the cameras that would be out there. So there really isn't anything to worry about. Um, but what I didn't think about at that time, didn't even enter my mind, is that 20 years later we would have the computer software technology that could recognize faces from cameras automatically. And not only do we recognize people and faces in images, but we can track those people from camera to camera to camera. So in some sort of uh, worst case scenario, you could have Big Brother know exactly what you do on a daily basis, and it becomes part of your permanent record. It's kind of a strange thing to think that this could all be recorded and uh, saved. It, it makes me feel uncomfortable. Uh, furthermore, uh, it's not going to be very long before you can walk into a, uh, some sort of social setting or bar or something and snap a picture and uh, get tags for names of all the people that are in the image things, buildings, but also people. 
And that could be kind of useful, you know, if you, you want to know who's, who you're with or who's there. But it also bothers me from a privacy point of view that someone who has uh, bad intentions can walk in and take a picture and say, oh, look, uh, here's Joe Smith and he's on vacation right now here in Hawaii. I guess that means it's okay to uh, rob his house and here's his address and everything and call your buddies back in wherever they are, California, and say, hey, this guy is on vacation and his house is free. Or this is how much money he has, this is what his net worth is, or hey, here's his uh, child and uh, he's a good kidnapping candidate because he's a very wealthy individual, that kind of thing. I don't know, call me paranoid, but this kind of technology is going to be available in just a few years, and I don't think we have anything in place to start to deal with the consequences. Uh, and, and on a more minor level, although maybe more irritating level, uh, from a Madison Avenue kind of point of view, I think uh, those of you that maybe remember the movie Minority Report from 2002, where the, the uh, character actor is walking, or the character in the movie is walking through a mall and basically because of uh, facial recognition the uh, advertisers can recognize who you are basically call to you by name and try to sell you all kinds of things It remembers what your coat size is or hey is that uh, pair of shoes you bought last year at Macy's they must have worn out by now you know you come buy a new pair or something like that uh, I, I don't even like to get solicitations at home on my phone. I just, uh, the idea of walking in a public area and getting uh, a <coughs> uh, sales attack, I guess, uh, from uh, automatic machinery kind of makes me a little bit concerned about the future. So what are we going to do about it? I don't know. Uh, another uh, topic is uh, inappropriate use. I don't have to say much more than uh, these pictures, I suppose. But, uh, you know, it's just every day in the newspaper you hear about people that are, let's say, misappropriately, uh, uh, inappropriately using this technology. And then uh, the last area is uh, what I call kind of a gray area in defense. Um, and, of course, defense is a very, very important thing. But uh, we're getting to the point where uh, weapons themselves can become very personalized. And I don't think it's, uh, it will be long before uh, we have something which, uh, well, I've, I've coined the phrase eye bullet, where uh, you can have a bullet that goes out, instead of shooting at a particular person in your rifle sight, you can uh, shoot into a crowd and the bullet knows who your intended target is and goes against that person. So I guess it's good in the sense that you only shoot the right person, the person you intend to shoot. It's not too good if you're that intended target, I suppose. Uh, and then a second uh, area which, uh, um, let's say, uh, creeps me out a little bit is uh, uh, projects already uh, in the works where you can build uh, very small robots that can uh, perhaps infiltrate uh, areas that uh, people would not be able to infiltrate so easily, can go in, photograph, identify uh, targets of opportunity, and in this case, in fact, uh, this is not what, I, what they're doing, but it's not a big stretch of the imagination that this kind of uh, robot could also deliver a, a lethal dose of some sort of nerve chemical or something to somebody who's sleeping or um, <coughs> inside a, a, a house. So, uh, you know, we create this uh, technology, but uh, 
there are unintended consequences and unintended applications. And uh, it's kind of interesting to me to kind of reflect on the fact that, wow, I actually had something to do with this. Yikes, I don't really like that feeling. But speaking of uh, people writing you anonymously on the internet, someone also wrote me a note. I got lots of nice mail. I got a note that uh, someone thought, well, gee, why are you bringing up these issues if you don't have any solution at all to propose? And uh, I thought that was a little unfair, but, uh, but it is true. I don't really have a solution to these problems. I don't know what to do. Um, but I'm hoping maybe, maybe some of you will think about it and come up with an idea. Okay, so back to science and technology. We're all much more comfortable, perhaps. <clears throat> so uh, in a uh, digital camera, uh, we are uh, collecting light. So uh, light comes from uh, some source, typically a black body emission from uh, a star or sun or incandescent light bulb or uh, some other uh, source, perhaps. Very many photons per square centimeter per second, typically in the visible range. We uh, collect that uh, light that reflects off of uh, objects uh, with particular spectral characteristics, uh, collect them through uh, an optical system, and then on to a digital sensor, uh, where we uh, convert that light into uh, electronic signals. Uh, so, uh, but one thing that's uh, is kind of important to note is that the uh, light that comes from these uh, sources uh, doesn't behave as well as we would like it to behave. It's not like water that drips out of a faucet at a nice constant rate, drip, 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 drip. It comes off in, uh, in bunches or statistically varying uh, time intervals. It's got shot noise in it. So if you were trying to do a measurement, which is really what a camera is doing, a camera is trying to measure the light on the scene. If, you, uh, if you're trying to measure, for example, traffic on the freeway, you can't just take one quick image and decide that that tells you what the freeway traffic is, because you could wind up capturing either a, very, a gap in the traffic or you could capture a lot of traffic. You have to integrate over a long period of time in order to get a, a good measure. And the same thing is true in a camera. We, there is a, a certain number, certain amount of signal that we have to collect in order to get a good uh, signal to noise ratio. So this is uh, shown graphically here. Um, so if we take a, uh, an image of, uh, should just be all the same intensity, and we, uh, well, we exaggerate that by uh, blowing up the, the histogram or the, uh, <coughs> the image display. Uh, we find that actually the uh, individual pixels all have uh, different values, but they're well behaved. They have this uh, uh, shot noise uh, property. And uh, that basically tells us, gives us a limit to uh, uh, what's the lowest light level that we can record with some sort of certainty as to what the light emission rate is. And so it's important for taking pictures in uh, darkened environments. The dark bar scene suffers from uh, shot noise. Taking uh, astronomical images suffers from shot noise. Uh, it's, uh, it's a real nuisance, and uh, it'd be nice if someone could come, away, come up with a way to get rid of shot noise. And I, I'll say uh, one thing that uh, has bothered me for a few years is that uh, if I look at a video image from a, a low light scene, I can see the shot noise right away, right away on the video monitor. It's pretty obvious. 
But darn it, if I go outside at night and I look around, I cannot see shot noise. And you know, what's the brain doing? I don't know. I wish someone would tell me. Because uh, it's pretty interesting that humans, we really don't seem to see shot noise at all. So is it like math by our brain? Is it something in the way that the, uh, the retina is uh, inhibiting the, the process? I'm not sure. But uh, it's pretty interesting that we don't see it. Uh, but it uh, unfortunately does show up in our pictures. And uh, this is a uh, simulated image. And uh, not only will the shot noise give us uh, change in uh, luminosity across it, but it can also change the, uh, the apparent color of the image as well due to noise. So we not only have to deal with shot noise, but something else that's become quite relevant recently is the diffraction limit. Uh, and the diffraction limit says that, uh, and uh, this is one of those moments where I'm sure that 75% uh, of you understand this well, and I apologize for saying this. <coughs> Boy, do I feel self-conscious. OK. Uh, anyway, uh, in the uh, diffraction limit, if we have a, uh, a, a perfect uh, point source and we put it through a, a perfect lens, we unfortunately do not image a perfect uh, point spot on the image plane. Uh, we wind up with a, a diffraction uh, effect. This is uh, airy pattern. This is the, the center disk. is called the uh, airy, uh, the airy disk. And it has a diameter, which is, uh, depends both on wavelength and the F number of the optics. So if you take uh, an F number like F2.8, which is typical in a cell phone, for example, and you look at the uh, size of this airy disk over wavelength, which is on this axis, you find that uh, in the green part of the spectrum, let's say the airy disk is about 4 microns in diameter. We'll come back to that later. But it kind of suggests that, gee, there should be some sort of diffraction-limited resolution that we should get uh, in a camera system. And that uh, for uh, pixels that are less than 4 microns, there must be a lot of this uh, going on. Okay, so uh, back to uh, following our, uh, our light into our chip. Uh, the light also goes through. Uh, Micro lenses on the uh, on a, a typical consumer uh, chip, and the micro lenses are—they're not imaging lenses; they're more like uh, funnels. They uh, they bring the light that might otherwise go into the chip and strike some of the wiring on the chip, which would not go into the photosensitive part of the chip, and redirect those rays into the uh, let's say the active part, the photodiode part of the chip. And then also you see that uh, there's also uh, color filters on top of the chip as well, typically red, green, and blue. And uh, they're arranged in a, uh, a pattern, which uh, typically there's two greens for every uh, red and blue. This is a uh, so-called uh, Bayer pattern, which uh, was developed at Kodak. Um, but that patent has expired a long time ago. So uh, it's now uh, open domain. You'll find this in almost every camera. and. Uh, also, uh, the important thing here is that uh, at every uh, pixel in the image, we do not collect the, the red, green, and blue signal for that particular pixel. We just collect one color only. And we'll have to uh, do something later to get the red, green, and blue at every pixel. 
The next step in the process is to uh, convert the uh, incoming photons into uh, electrons. So uh, if we have uh, silicon, which is uh, tightly uh, bonded in a kind of diamond sort of way, uh, and we put an electric field on it, uh, well, nothing happens. All these electrons just stay where they are. But if we have a, uh, a photon come in that has sufficient energy, it can actually break one of these bonds, and uh, the electron that was in that bond is released to wander in the crystal. And not only that, the, uh, the bond that's broken uh, is now uh, net positively charged. And uh, kind of like a, uh, a bubble in a, uh, well, okay, my favorite uh, analogy is a bubble in beer. I don't know why that is, but it, it is. Uh, so the, uh, the beer bubble, uh, just like uh, in beer, is uh, kind of an anti-gravity sort of object that it moves upward in the beer. You can try this experiment later if you like. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, <coughs> uh, and of course it's not, the bubble itself isn't the real thing. It's actually the beer that's moving downward as it should be. But it's often convenient to track the, uh, the bubble part and talk about that. And we, we do that in the semiconductor as well. We talk about the hole that's left behind. And this hole is also free to migrate, and it looks like it would uh, drift to the left, which really means that electrons from neighboring bonds are migrating over and filling in this, uh, this broken bond. But we'll track both the electron and the hole pair. Uh, and uh, the uh, um, probability that that photon will uh, break a bond is, uh, depends on the energy of the photon. And so uh, a blue photon, which is higher energy, will be absorbed uh, pretty quickly in the uh, semiconductor. This is 1,000 nanometers, so the probability of absorption is uh, quite high in that first 1,000 nanometers. Uh, green and red, unfortunately, uh, that absorption like drops off uh, quite a bit, and uh, we need thicker silicon in order to uh, effectively collect those photons. Now in a... Uh, uh, modern detector, we actually build this structure, which is a uh, sometimes known as a pin photodiode. There is a uh, surface uh, pinning layer, P plus, and uh, N layer, which is where the uh, carriers are collected, and then another P layer. This uh, larger PN area is the uh, the main collection area for the uh, photodiode. And so, a uh, an electron hole pair that's generated out here. Typically, uh, the electron is uh, swept into this potential well in the N layer <coughs> and uh, collected, and the hole goes to the substrate, and we don't care about pretty much after that. Uh, and uh, what we do is we, uh, we allow these different photons to come in and uh, get absorbed, and we uh, collect electrons. And the, uh, at the end of some integration time, we count the number of electrons, and we decide that must be proportional to the light intensity that was falling on this particular photodetector. And that's the way we kind of deduce go from uh, electrons to uh, photons. Now, uh, uh, in the uh, commercial world, um, a very interesting change has taken place, and that is that instead of uh, illuminating the chip from the top side, uh, we are now uh, going to uh, thin the chip and illuminate it from the back side. Uh, this is nothing new in the scientific community. Practically since the uh, first day after CCD was invented, People tried thinning it and to illuminate it from the backside because even the CCDs blocked the light by some of the electrodes that were there. Um, but you know, if you go to something like the uh, wide-field planetary camera, 
which was a backside illuminated device, I believe. Uh, those individual CCDs had to be thin, kind of one at a time, and it was really uh, an art to thin those devices and get good results. It's very tricky to thin down the silicon and not go too far, but and also get a very smooth surface. So what's changed is that, uh, and by the way, those CCDs might cost thousands of dollars a piece, partly because of that process. Uh, today, uh, you know, these sensors cost uh, two bucks or five bucks because this uh, wafer thinning process is done on the, at the wafer level across the entire wafer and uh, in very, very high volume. It's, uh, it's an amazing thing. So uh, their uh, first generation uh, solid state image sensor, as uh, Jonas pointed out, was the uh, CCD that was invented around uh, somewhere around 1970, 1969. Uh, and in that, uh, in that device, uh, we build a, uh, a shift register where we can put voltages on these gates and shift the charge uh, step by step um, in a semiconductor. And uh, I guess the, uh, the best analogy for uh, CCD operating is if you wanted to measure the, uh, the rainfall across a, uh, a football field, you get uh, thousands of people to stand out on the football field, each with a bucket. And, uh, let it rain for a while, and at the end of the, uh, the integration period, when you're ready to measure the uh, rainfall, you have everybody pour the contents of their bucket out into the person next to them, just before or just after that person empties their bucket. So you, uh, you basically carefully uh, shift the uh, signal down the uh, football field, and then at the uh, very edge of the field, you have a group of people that are uh, very, very fast bucket brigade shifters that uh, shift the charge off to uh, the corner of the field where the actual water in each uh, bucket load is measured. Uh, so it's, a, uh, it's an amazing thing that uh, through thousands of transfers across centimeters of chip that today in a CCD uh, you could only lose a few electrons. They're kind of two things, two engineering marvels in my mind. That I, well, that I think about. One is that when I go to the airport, that this 747 is actually going to fly. <laughs> and the second is that a CCD works as well as it does. Now, when I came to uh, JPL, uh, CCDs were uh, being uh, flown on a lot of missions, but unfortunately, uh, for various reasons, if uh, there was some sort of defect or something in one of these. Uh, buckets, it could either block the entire transfer of charge down a column or you could wind up streaming charge behind you as you're transferring it. Um, lots of different uh, defects could happen. So uh, one of the things that uh, I was asked to do was to look at whether or not um, we can improve the reliability of image sensors in space by something, doing something to the CCD or, or something else. And that was really the genesis for uh, the invention of the CMOS image sensor, was this problem with CCDs. So uh, to do that, I uh, started to address the, uh, the issue of, uh, well, first, uh, active pixel. And active pixel, by the way, uh, was something that existed even before CCDs. At least the idea of an active pixel existed before CCDs. 
uh, unfortunately at that time, to build uh, any kind of uh, microelectronic circuitry required um, matching a lot of threshold voltages across all the MOSFETs that were on the chip. And in 1968 or so, that just was not practical. Every detector on the array had a completely different response, and uh, people were busy trying to solve that problem, but the CCD solved it, because now we just shifted the charge. We didn't actually try to do any amplification or readout until we hit the corner of the chip, where there was just a single transistor to read the charge out. So it was pretty clever for solving that problem. Uh, but at least in the, uh, in the active pixel, the idea is that we uh, integrate the signal, and now instead of uh, everybody on the football field passing their charge out to the corner of the field, we just give everybody a measuring stick and a cell phone, and they can kind of call in their, uh, their measurement value. So, uh, and then we get away from that uh, charge transfer um, problem or defect problem that causes inefficiency in charge transfer. So, uh, so uh, that was where the, uh, the CMOS uh, active pixel sensor uh, concept came from. That was developed at uh, JPL. And, uh, and part, of the, uh, part of the reason why we could do this is timing. Because in 1968, the CMOS processes, or it wasn't even CMOS, just MOS processes at the time, uh, had this giant threshold instability problem. But by the early 90s, that problem had pretty much been solved by industry. So uh, the thresholds, not only were they stable, but they were very well matched uh, across the image plane if we built a, uh, an image sensor out of them. And uh, another thing that was uh, important was that uh, people were starting to get concerned with these very large CCDs. It's actually like a giant capacitor, huge area capacitor that you have to uh, charge and discharge at some relatively high frequency. And this requires a lot of power to build those drive circuits. And uh, that power is uh, another big issue, especially in spacecraft, and as it turns out, also in mobile electronics. Uh, whereas if we do this on an individual pixel basis, it takes uh, less power in total. So, uh, so if we could just build this uh, device that doesn't require the uh, charge transfer many thousands of times, uh, we don't have to worry about a very specialized device process as much. And we could build this device out of uh, standard uh, microelectronics CMOS technology. So that's great. That could be a, considered a cost savings or something. But even more importantly is that the, uh, not only uh, can we build the pixels out of this technology, but if we're using that same technology anyway, we can put a lot of other electronics on the same chip. So we can put the timing control logic. We can put selection logic. Uh, analog signal processing, mixed signal circuits, and uh, even the A to D converter, all on the same chip. And this is really what led to uh, the camera on a chip concept. So uh, in this device, um, this is an example of that device. Here's the uh, a pixel array and row decoders and column decoders and uh, analog signal processing, A to D converters and programmable gain amplifiers and a lot of digital logic. And uh, I believe this is a, uh, correct me, Tom, but this is a JPL chip, right? Well, that was a long time ago, but anyway. I think this was uh, better brought up Pines uh, um, from that group. <coughs> okay, they're debating whether that's true or not, but I think it's true. Uh, and this is a cross-section of a, uh, let's call it a, a modern device, at least front-side illumination, 
This is that photo detector we looked at with the pinning layer on the surface, which uh, reduces dark current quite a bit and uh, also improves the blue response. This is the end layer where the electrons are stored after they're generated. This is the sort of detector area proper. And uh, the other thing that we did, uh, which was new, was uh, add the uh, opportunity to correlate a double sampling in the pixel itself. So uh, in this case, uh, we would uh, collect the signal in, well, of course, this is a modern device. Our devices were a little more primitive at the time. But we can collect the charge in the photo detector. And then for readout, we can reset the uh, output diode and then uh, measure through this source follower, this amplifier in the pixel, the voltage on this diode. Because when you reset a, with a switch, you reset a capacitance. When you open the switch, even though you think you set it to a particular voltage, like let's say two volts, yeah, the switch is kind of like a bridge, a drawbridge, and you can imagine that uh, the electrons are like people walking back and forth across the drawbridge, and when you open the drawbridge up, suddenly you may have statistically some more people on one side than on the other side, and this is called KTC noise in electronics. So uh, it means that uh, when we reset a, a capacitor, we're never sure exactly what the voltage is. So uh, the way we know what it is is we just measure it. So we reset it, we measure it, and then we transfer all the electrons that are collected in the photodiode to the same node. And those, uh, all those electrons have to be transferred completely. We need complete charge transfer. If we transfer them all to this node, then they're all accounted for, and the change in voltage on this node is just related to the capacitance in that charge. And we measure that. And if we take the difference, then the uh, KTC noise is uh, suppressed, along with some other noise sources. So uh, in this uh, electronics on a chip, we, uh, of course, we want to put the row selection, decoders, and everything. But in a uh, modern consumer device, there's many, many other things now that are put on this chip. Uh, things like color interpolation and lens shading correction and flicker detection. This is just, you know, if you take a picture inside under fluorescent lights, the lights are actually going on and off at some high frequency. And if you happen to open the shutter on your camera for the wrong time, you could get like a dark exposure or bright exposure or the top half of the picture is properly exposed and the other half's not. So you actually have to detect what the flicker is in a light so you can synchronize your camera with that autofocus support, for example. And we'll come back to this color interpolation one in a moment. So uh, in color interpolation, I said we only uh, measure either green, red, or blue at any one pixel. But of course, when we get our 24-bit RGB data out of the chip, we expect to have red, green, and blue data for every pixel. So uh, to do that is, uh, is simple. We just uh, interpolate. So for example, if we have this pixel here. We know exactly what the red value is. But if we want to know what the green is, we just uh, say, hey, you know, it's just the average of these surrounding neighbors. So it's an interpolation step. And if it's uh, for blue, we say it's the average of uh, these blue neighbors. So that's color interpolation. We get red, green, and blue for uh, every pixel. Uh, you notice that uh, doing this color interpolation step is, um, is a little bit like a blur function, because now we're taking actually data from this large area to create the green value for this pixel, and the same with uh, the blue. 
Uh, furthermore, uh, this is a very unsophisticated algorithm because it doesn't take into account the fact that we could have edges of objects that are running through the, uh, through the uh, imaging array. And if you're clever, you know, rather instead of blurring the edge of somebody's sleeve, you kind of look ahead and look at the larger area and decide, oh, there's an edge running through here. So I don't really want to average all four greens. I really want just these two greens to contribute to this value. So there's some extra image processing uh, required as well. Uh, in addition to uh, this part, uh, there is also uh, the light out part. So when we, uh, we take a picture and then we look at it later, we kind of expect that the picture we see on the screen uh, looks as good or even better than the picture we took. We may want to improve the skin tone or for some of us we want to drop 10 pounds or something in the, in the final image. <clears throat> so, uh, but uh, not only do we have to worry about that kind of image processing, but we also have to worry about the fact that the light comes in, the uh, light has some characteristic absorption length in the silicon, it's different for different wavelengths, uh, there's color filters. The color filters have their own absorption coefficients. Uh, there's processing that we just talked about that goes on the camera. There's additional processing that goes on the computer. And then when we go to display it, we're using a, uh, let's say, a LCD that has its own spectral characteristics. And we have to match that as well so that you wind up with uh, the right uh, sort of colors on the screen that you started with. Actually, not such an easy problem. So uh, that brings us to the uh, state of the art. Uh, Pixel counts for consumers these days are in the 8 to 16 megapixel range, and professional cameras are higher. And for aerospace applications, uh, typically approaching 100 megapixels, so a lot of pixels. Pixel sizes are uh, maybe 2.2 microns down to 1.1 microns for common consumer applications. Interesting, given that the airy disk diameter is about 4 microns, that uh, we're building cameras with maybe 1.1 micron pixel size. Anyway, here's a Sony a DSLR uh, sensor, 24 megapixels. Should be out cameras soon. Uh, another uh, example of uh, state-of-the-art is a UDTV, or super high vision uh, sensor uh, for uh, future television, <coughs> which has uh, got 33 megapixels at uh, 60 frames per second, or two, gigapi two gigapixels per second. Uh, those chips exist. Um, and we built some of the first ones of those at uh, uh, Photobit. And I used to uh, think that, uh, gee, you know, when we went from 300,000 pixels to 2 megapixels, as we went from standard television to HDTV, uh, that was a big barrier. Uh, if you remember, uh, boy, finally uh, the broadcasters did not want to broadcast upgrade all their equipment to be able to do two megapixels. And finally, the government had to step in and say, hey, here's a deadline, and you will all broadcast HDTV by a certain date. Um, now, for this, you think, well, wow, 33 megapixels from two megapixels, that's never going to happen. But actually, is another thing that I uh, didn't think about at the time, is that, um, well, probably most of us don't watch TV using a, uh, an antenna anyway. It all comes in on uh, cable, perhaps, or uh, on the internet, some internet line. And uh, very soon, it's all going to be packetized video that we get for every application, I think. So uh, actually, broadcasting 33 megapixels per second 
uh, uh, 33 megapixel images at 60 frames per second may in fact be quite possible. In fact, maybe a lot lower barrier than going from standard TV to HDTV. Might be quite easy. So uh, maybe uh, we'll get to see this in uh, the next uh, dozen or so years. Now, uh, space and science sensors. Uh, you know, I was kind of curious what the state of the art was. And, and actually, I am sorry to say, I haven't really tracked what's happened uh, with this technology since I left JPL. And I did some internet searching and I uh, uh, found a, a lot of interesting things. Uh, oops, not the, that yet. But uh, there's a, uh, for example, 70 megapixel, three and a half micron, three frames per second uh, sensor that was just announced. Uh, there is um, <coughs> two megapixel CMOS sensor that's uh, been put in a, a weather satellite. Uh, very large uh, CCDs are still being made. There's 106 CCD, tiled CCDs, uh, gigapixel uh, sensor. Uh, Fairchild has announced a uh, sort of five megapixel uh, range uh, scientific device. Uh, readout noise less than two electrons RMS. That's pretty much what a commercial device does today also. Um, but I did find that almost all the stuff that was flying in space was coming from Europe and not from the US. Um, so there's been a lot of progress in uh, some uh, airborne stuff I just saw today when I was visiting JPL, uh, really neat stuff. But uh, not so much um, in the US-based space programs. So I could either be really misinformed or it points to the uh, fact that uh, the space program, especially the U.S. space program, is very, very conservative. And I can, I can understand that as a taxpayer, that I don't want to spend a billion dollars building some uh, interplanetary spacecraft probe and only to turn out that uh, use my technology and it didn't work because CCDs were proven. That would be a bad thing. Uh, and so, you know, it makes sense that if there's no compelling reason to insert the technology, that no one wants to take the risk. And it's interesting that the Europeans, on the other hand, it's the same technology, have uh, pushed ahead and used it in a lot more applications. I don't know what it means, but it was, and, and maybe it doesn't mean anything. It could be that just I'm a bad Google searcher. But, uh, <laughs> but I'd be very interested in hearing later if... Uh, if this is wrong or if this is right. <coughs> um, okay. So uh, moving on to uh, just some uh, coming attractions. Uh, there'll be more camera phones. Uh, this is kind of a trend chart for uh, camera phones. Um, this is a this is in million units, so that's a billion, and that's per year. So here we are in 2011 or 2012. It's like 1.25 billion camera phones be made in 2012, something like that. Also means that about a billion camera phones are going into landfill because it's about the same rate in and out, right? After maybe two years, you, you upgrade your phone. Um, and uh, also that uh, these camera phones have increasing resolution. Pretty soon, uh, 12 megapixels will be uh, fairly commonplace. 
Another uh, trend is uh, the insertion of uh, backside illumination, backside uh, devices from uh, front side. This is just a uh, breakdown on pixel size and uh, kind of what's been used by different companies. And you can see somewhere around the 2 micron or 1.5 micron range, there is a crossover to using backside illumination. And this is to try to improve the quantum efficiency uh, that you get limited by in a front side device, even with micro lenses you still get limited by how much light you can get into the pixel. And so uh, backside starts to make sense at that point. Uh, smaller pixels uh, means that you can put uh, more pixels on, uh, on chips. And, uh, uh, or you can make smaller chips from those same pixels, and that's very good because uh, people want to have uh, cameras uh, in, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I guess I did it twice. Uh, uh, more integrated into all kinds of consumer products. So you can see them in your iPads, you can see them in the edge of your display screen, and uh, you know, probably Dick Tracy watches before long, I'm sure. <coughs> uh, and then also, uh, or you could, for the same size chip, you can just put more megapixels on, and that's also uh, very important because, I cannot control this, I'm sorry, because uh, more megapixels sells all kinds of things, like more cellular service traffic, bigger computers, better software, mass storage. There's a whole ecosystem uh, that's related to pixel count. And it's a good trend as far as uh, electronics manufacturers are concerned. Um, yeah, so, uh, but uh, we are entering this visible light, the fraction limit zone. So uh, we're getting less and less return on resolution <clears throat> so uh, it's uh, not quite as bad as you would think. If this is uh, a uh, airy disk of uh, four microns, and I put overlaid it on some 0.9 micron pixel pitch of the Bayer pattern, you can see that hey, you know, from a color point of view, it's kind of good that maybe we do less interpolation because now all this is sort of fuzzed together. Anyway, we don't need an anti-aliasing filter, for example, perhaps in our camera to get rid of the uh, color aliasing problem. Uh, but it's definitely uh, marginal returns. Now, uh, another person wrote me, I got a lot of email from these uh, YouTube talks, but uh, said, oh, you know, obviously then I shouldn't be buying cameras with uh, less than uh, four microns. And I just want to emphasize that that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that there is a less and less return on resolution as you drop the pixel size, but it's not a, a cliff that you fall off of <coughs> or a wall that you hit. It's just less and less return. I'll also see improved functionality, uh, particular higher dynamic range and global shutters and higher speed readouts. Um, already we see cameras that uh, go at uh, thousands of frames uh, per second at pretty high resolution. And uh, just recently, uh, people have been, uh, companies are producing, uh, Nikon in particular, mirrorless DSLR with embedded focus pickle, pixels in it, uh, which is kind of interesting from a consumer camera point of view. But there's also uh, what I would consider uh, paradigm changing ac research activity going on. <coughs> and uh, uh, two of these are uh, close to me. One is the quantum image sensor, which is uh, kind of my baby, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And the other is uh, 3D range sensors. But there's also a lot of work on computational imaging. I'm not sure where this will go in the consumer space. Um, planoptic uh, sensors, uh, quantum dot film sensors. I, I suspect that inserting this technology is not 
compelling, but uh, we'll see. Uh, yeah, it's one thing to have a great idea. It's a whole other thing to be able to get it inserted into uh, mainstream electronics and mainstream use, just like it's hard to insert CMOS, perhaps, into a uh, space program. <coughs> so, um, so let me talk about the quantum image sensor uh, just for a couple of minutes, and uh, I will uh, release you. Uh, so uh, in the quantum image sensor, let's say you want to uh, go really, really small in pixel size. So consider a, a very tiny pixel, and I'm going to, uh, that pixel is sensitive only to a single photoelectron, and basically it changes state from zero to one when a photoelectron is present. So it's not your normal pixel anymore, and so I actually gave it a, uh, a different name. I call it a jot, which comes from the, the Greek for uh, smallest possible thing. So now it's, it's not a grayscale pixel, it's just a zero or a one is the output. And uh, we make these things really small, uh, maybe 100 nanometers to 500 nanometer uh, pitch. So that's about 100 times uh, less area than the state of the art right now. Um, and we want uh, billions on a single chip, so that's also uh, a good couple of orders of magnitude than the current state of the art, another challenge. Uh, plus, we're going to need to detect these uh, single uh, photoelectrons with uh, good signal-to-noise ratio, maybe uh, 10 to 1 or something like that. So we really need a kind of a single electron amplifier or single electron uh, transistor. A uh, lot of challenges there, and at, uh, but at, uh, at a point mi one micron uh, jot pitch, 100 nanometers, you could put uh, a, a gigajot sensor um, in a quarter-inch optical format, which is very, very tiny sensor. Uh, you saw that uh, Gaia sensor, which was uh, many, many 106 CCDs or something. So now we can possibly think about shrinking that down to a much smaller size. Uh, but the other interesting thing about this quanta image sensor is that uh, it changes the paradigm. In the current paradigm, uh, we build a box in the silicon, the pixel, and we collect photoelectrons in it, and then when we read it out, we uh, dis determine a uh, corresponding light level for that number of photoelectrons that we caught. And maybe this one in this example turns out to be uh, gray. So the uh, pixel size is uh, very fixed in, uh, in volume, and it has a certain capacity as well, according to kind of the intrinsic capacitance of the device. In the uh, new paradigm um, that I'm suggesting is, uh, is that we count every photo generated carrier and record the time and location. So if this is the, uh, or the image plane, uh, we are, uh, I've just kind of schematically shown where the photoelectrons have been collected. These are just these gray dots here. And it's basically a bit plane of information. And uh, <clears throat> what we want to do is to be able to read this bit plane out very quickly before another photon comes in and kind of co contaminates uh, the location we've already collected of photoelectrons, so we don't want to get double counting because we'd lose that in that case. But in order to do that, we have to read out these bit planes at very high speed. So uh, we kind of have, uh, uh, well, lots of data is what it turns out to be. But uh, <clears throat> when we have all that uh, bit data, the paradigm really changes because now, uh, what do we mean by a pixel? Well, a pixel is something that we generate by software or firmware later from all these counts. We could decide that, hey, this is the size of a pixel, 
and it's this size in area, and it's this length in time, and we could just count all the, the hits inside that soft defined box and call that our pixel. And if we don't like the result, we could, uh, maybe the signal to noise ratio isn't good enough, we can decrease the resolution and increase the box size and uh, get a more satisfactory result or change it in time as well. Um, or if we're uh, even more clever, perhaps, uh, we don't even have to just, so it's like weighting a convolution with kind of a, a unit function, square step function. Uh, we could just uh, maybe uh, convolve this uh, bit plane data with uh, a different function inside so that we're actually weighting the values of hits in different locations and generate the image that way. And we can do this when we want to, and we can do it, we can change our minds if we don't like the result. Another interesting thing about this paradigm change is that uh, when we go to create our image from this bit plane data, we don't necessarily have to think that this jot lines up with the one behind it and the one behind it and the one behind it. If there's motion in the image or there's atmospheric turbulence, we can actually shift these bit planes in a sort of lucky imaging way to get better alignment and get our, our images out that way. <coughs> or if we're doing TDI, we could do TDI type sensing and we could have any arbitrary track direction that we need to. In a CCD TDI, for example, you have to track in one axis of the chip, basically. But in this case, we could line up these, uh, these bit planes in any arbitrary angle we wanted to. A lot of interesting potential for this sort of thing, I think. So uh, what it would look like, you'd have to have this uh, jot array of 1, 0.1 to 10 uh, gigajots, uh, some sort of uh, high-speed column sense amplifiers, and uh, yeah, and then, uh, hey, it's a nice challenge. We're going to get data that's uh, <laughs> 1 to 10 terabits per second out. So we might want to do some processing on the chip and some, some off the chip. Um, so I'm not saying it's an easy problem. We've got a very, very small device. We have billions of them, and they produce terabits of data per second. But then the imaging domain has moved from some sort of hardware thing to a software thing, which means it's very, very flexible. And the image formation is accessible to a lot more people in terms of how you want to create the image from the detector plane. Okay, uh, that's the quantum image sensor. The second uh, sensor I want to talk about uh, is a time of flight range sensor. Um, these sensors work by, and not invented by me, this has been around for a while, uh, a near-infrared uh, LED, for example, that, uh, well, you could think of it as just a single, like, sonar-like pulse that sends out a pulse of light and it comes back and we record the time it takes to come back to the camera and deduce our, uh, our range from that time. Or that usually doesn't give you enough signal-to-noise ratio. You uh, send out a, a pulse train and depending upon the uh, range, it uh, changes the phase of the returning pulses. And from uh, measuring uh, many of these with some sort of lock-in pixel, you can uh, determine the phase shift um, for every single pixel and get the range that way. So this is, a, this is kind of a uh, not, not a new idea. Um, 
but does uh, work that, uh, as I said, I, no, we, I didn't say. I also do consulting at Samsung Electronics, I should say. Uh, so this is part of that, uh, that work. Uh, so uh, what we're uh, doing at Samsung is we're just, uh, well, it took us a few years to catch up to everybody else. Now I think uh, we've got uh, probably the, the best mousetrap out there for this particular thing. Uh, and this is a uh, range image that you get out out of a 192 by 108 array, and it's color-coded according to the distance. Um, we get uh, pretty good linearity uh, with distance. This is distance 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 meters, and this is, uh, you see it's quite uh, linear, and then this is the distance error in percent. This is 1% and 0 over this distance, so you see we're well under 1% uh, distance accuracy. And the, the, the key thing here from a, a consumer point of view uh, in this odd pose is that we can detect individual fingers. So it's very important for gesture control. Now you're all familiar with Kinect and that game box, but if you want to think about the next generation gesture control, it's very important to be able to see people's fingers so that you uh, can uh, recognize them. So we have to have enough resolution and good enough sensitivity to start to be able to see uh, individual fingers like that. We're just about there now. In the longer term, and this is uh, other uh, straight out of the lab kind of uh, work, is to uh, create, uh, what we want to do is to create an improved market for 3D displays at Samsung. So uh, after the movie Avatar, Samsung announced its 3D uh, TVs, and there was some early adopters that adopted it. But uh, how many of you have a 3D TV? One. <laughs> So if you're thinking like Samsung, you're thinking, man, not so good yet, okay, in terms of market penetration. How do we get more people to buy 3D TVs? Well, the obvious problem with your buying a 3D TV is there's nothing to watch, <laughs> right? So we have to enable people to be able to create content, media content. And so uh, in the vision is that your cell phone now uh, not only records the scene, but also records the uh, range for uh, close-in objects so you can actually uh, use your 3D display. Uh, cell phone or camcorder or something like that. So uh, in order to do that, uh, we've been working on trying to embed these time of flight pixels into the normal red, green, blue pixels on the image plane so that uh, some of these uh, pixels are reading out color and some are reading out depth. This is just a very early result. Um, but this is a, uh, a range map. Again, I haven't shown you the color information because we've, we know the, how to build good color pixels already. This is just the range data, uh, lab scene. You can see a computer and whiteboard and some other things <coughs> range from one to uh, uh, seven meters or so. And it's getting to be pretty good. There's some noise, but uh, what uh, surprised me even was that uh, for very, very tiny detectors, uh, we were actually getting uh, quite uh, decent results. So uh, let me wrap up then and uh, say in conclusion that, uh, well, for me personally, uh, <laughs> life's been good. Um, image sensors have come a long way since the first generation uh, CCD devices. Uh, second generation device, the CMOS Active Pixel image sensor, which was born up the street at JPL, uh, is going strong. Uh, billions and billions served, literally billions and billions. In fact, uh, if you want to have some fun, just calculate if you're making a one and a half billion cameras per year, how many cameras per second are coming off the production line? It's 
it's fast. Uh, I think there's a lot of interesting work ahead as we move the uh, digital divide as close as possible to the digital nature of photons. It's the quantum image sensor uh, work. And then uh, last but uh, hardly least, I think uh, this overconnection of billions of massive information gathering engines, that's what a camera is, uh, leads to some pretty interesting societal issues and some questions, which I hope you get a chance to contemplate. So thank you very much for Friday night. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.